I invite you to turn to Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119. The Lord has led me to a text that I would like to expose this morning from the longest chapter in the Scriptures. Psalm 119. Let's read Psalm 119, verses 16, excuse me, verses 9 to 16. The second stanza. The psalmist has written, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Please be seated. As I've said, this is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's been called the Mount Everest of the Psalter due to its sheer size, which expands to 176 verses. I actually once heard a sermon that attempted to deal with all 176 verses. I'm not going to do that this morning. I have not reached that skill level yet. The overarching theme of this chapter in the Word of God is the Word of God and how you should view it. The author is unknown for certain, but what can be relatively certain is the severe and serious duress the author was facing while he wrote this. For instance, verse 61 says, The cords of the wicked have encircled me. Another unique thing about Psalm 119 is this. It's composed of 22 sections or stanzas, each containing eight lines. Each section starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which comprises of 22 letters, hence the Psalm's 22 eight-lined stanzas. Now, as I've mentioned, and I will repeat this so that we can keep the big picture in mind, the theme of this psalm is the Bible, God's book, the book, the supreme authority given to his people. Now, as we study Psalm 119, it's also important to understand that the psalmist uses eight different terms which all refer to the same thing, Scripture. He uses the word law. Testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, word, and ordinances. Keep that in mind as we traverse through this text this morning. The author of Psalm 119 wants to get one main point across to you right now. And it's this. The written word of God should dominate your life. 
You heard that before? Would you all agree with that statement? Well, every now and then, we need to get back to the basics. Because we are a very forgetful people. We need to reestablish the fundamental convictions we were taught in our spiritual childhood. We need to refocus on what's primary and unfocus on what's tertiary. The longer we're in church, the longer we're Christians, it's so easy to focus in on our preferences, right? It's so easy to be centered on things that aren't that important. And then we begin to lose focus on what's primary to the point where we can't even see it. It's so blurry. We need to hit the pause button and restate what we believe for the sake of doctrinal unity, peace, and truth. We need to take a step back from the hustle and bustle of our personal lives and even church lives to remember what keeps us grounded. Now, there's no teaching, there's no Christian doctrine more necessary to revisit regularly than the area of bibliology. Bibliology is the study of the book. Without a proper view of the Bible, our views of God, Christ, man, sin, salvation, eternity become clouded and distorted. Our bibliology informs how we view the Bible, how we use the Bible, what we do with the Bible, and what it does to us. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to be retrained on the effects the Word of God has in your life, or should have. In Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16, There are eight effects the Bible has in your life. Eight effects the Bible has in your life. If you see these effects in your life being manifested regularly, then you know you're saved. Romans 8 applies to you. And you know you're handling the Bible rightly. As Paul told Timothy to accurately handle the word of truth. If you do not see these effects, then there are two conclusions that are possible. One is that the Spirit of God is not in you. The Spirit of God is the one who illuminates the Scriptures and changes you through the Scriptures. You can't change and you can't experience the effects of the Word without the Spirit. Or secondly, you could just be spiritually ill. And we all get spiritually ill from time to time. So if if you have to make one of those two conclusions about yourself after hearing the message, take heart. There is true hope yet to be found in Christ through faith alone. Now, let's look at these effects. The first one is this. The Bible keeps you from immorality. The Bible should keep you from immorality. According to verse 9, the only way of being morally blameless is to obey the word of God. Look at verse 9 again. He asks the question and answers it. How can a young man keep his way pure 
by keeping it according to your word. This verse sets the tone for the whole stanza. This is the stream of thought you see here. In the Hebrew, the word translated pure literally means to keep clean in a moral sense. The psalmist is asking, how can somebody live a morally righteous life? How? This is not a question you're going to get from the world, is it? They're going to ask you, how can you have your fun while you're young? Sow your wild oats, man. Reach for the stars. Get what you need to get out of life, right? The world does not care about your purity. They care about popularity and pleasure. But those who love God value purity or holiness or moral cleanliness. You guys remember James 127? I preached on that about a year ago. Who remembers the outline? I'm just kidding. But remember James 127. He says he's saying the same thing the psalmist says. <coughs> Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is this. To visit orphans, widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's only one way to keep yourself unstained. By keeping it according to your word. The answer is so simple, isn't it? It's so clear. It's so easy to understand. If you want to be morally righteous, you do not look to the world. You do not look to self. You look to the written word of scripture, which will always lead you to purity. But let's face the facts for a second. It's very difficult to practice, isn't it? What does it really mean? Really mean to keep your way according to the Bible? I'll just give you a few. To keep your way pure, you have to keep good company. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. It's going to be very difficult for you to be pure if you're surrounding yourself constantly with wicked people. People that don't care about purity. Another way to keep yourself pure by keeping the word is to distance yourself from temptation. Paul told Timothy, who was a young pastor, to flee youthful passions. And Paul told the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Another way that you could keep yourself pure by keeping the word is to monitor closely your daily conduct and what you believe. What you believe. Watch it. We focus a lot on action, right? We also got to focus on our beliefs, our theology, our thinking. Another thing that Paul exhorted young Pastor Timothy to do was to watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the Bible was not given for us for our information. 
It was given for our transformation. And therefore, it will change you from the inside, which will show in your life. The Bible should keep you from immorality. The second effect that I want you to see is in the next verse. The Bible keeps you from apostasy. Apostasy. If you don't remember that word, it just means to defect, to leave, to wander away. And if you want to safeguard from being a statistic among those who abandon the faith, seek after God wholeheartedly and pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Look at verse 10. It says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Did you know that to wander from God's commandments is to wander from God? Notice in verse 10 it says all. That little word that we gloss over. All my hearts. Meaning that this is not a half-hearted approach to God. The psalmist is not talking about a mindless, ho-hum attitude with regard to Scripture. Seeking after God through coming into contact with the living Word is not simply an item on your to-do list. To seek God with all your heart means that He's at the very core, the epicenter of your life, and everything else falls out of that. Who likes pie? Like pie? Me too. Think of your life as a big pie, divided into slices. Each one represented a different facet or category of your life. For most of us, there's a slice that represents work. There's a slice that represents family. There's a slice that represents entertainment. Or recreation. There's a slice that represents friends. There's a slice that represents chores, right? We've got to do chores around the house. Then maybe there's a slice for God. If that's what your life is like, if God is just another item in your schedule, then you cannot... Seek God with all your heart. Because your heart is divided into slices. God must be the center of every facet of your life. In other words, God is intertwined in all you do. That's what it means to seek God with your heart. With all of your heart. And so we never must open the word of God and compartmentalize it. As if we're reading a history book or a science book, or a favorite novel, or any other book written by man. Rather, we must see the Scripture as the living, breathing grace letter written to you by God for the purpose of expressing His glory and to reveal His plan of redemption. But knowing our hearts... What does the Bible say about our hearts? It says it will mislead us, right? Knowing our hearts, it's very hard to continue to seek after God, is it not? So the psalmist offers a prayer, a very short one, 
that we should pray often. Look at the second line of verse 10. He prays, do not let me wander from your commandments. No matter how committed we may have been at any given time, we must be aware of our propensity to leave. Until glorification, there will always be in us a natural capacity to drift away from the faith. And so in your daily prayers, pray, Lord, do not let me wander from your commandments. Do you want to know another thing that you could do to guard against apostasy? You could sing. Sing. If you can't carry a tune in a bucket, sing when you're by yourself. That's what I do. You could sing often the wonderful hymn we just had the privilege of singing, Come Thou Fount. Remember the second and third verse of that hymn? Listen to it carefully. Because I think sometimes when we're singing in church, especially if it's very familiar to us, we're not really thinking deeply about what we're singing, do we? In the second verse, it says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. We were all at one time wanderers, but Jesus drew us to himself. The third verse of that wonderful hymn is all about our propensity to wander. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, now like a fetter. You guys know what a fetter is? A fetter is a shackle. It's a restraint. So when you sing that, you're saying, Lord, shackle me to your grace. Do not let me be separated from your grace. Chain me to it. That's what you're singing. Then he says... Find my yielding? No. Find my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here is my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So this writer of this historic hymn, he knew fully well of his own proneness to deviate from God's word. When we sing that hymn, that's what you're saying. I am aware of my own heart's proneness to pull me away from God. And the moment you let your guard down, the moment you deny that and forget that, you will begin to wander. But by God's grace, you don't have to. God has given you safeguards. You can seek after him with your whole heart. You can make sure that he's in the center of your life, not just a slice of it. And you could pray constantly for security. There's a third effect the Bible should have on your life. Verse 11. The Bible keeps you from sin. The Bible keeps you from sin. 
First from immorality, and then from apostasy, and now from sin. If you desire to be protected from sin, then you need to internalize the words written in this book. Verse 11. The psalmist says, Your word I have treasured in my heart. To treasure means storing up something that's very precious, like we would with gold or silver. It carries the idea of hoarding riches in a safe place where they are carefully guarded and watched over so that they may not be lost, stolen, or disposed of. That is how the word of God must be stowed in your heart. To guard it. Lock it up. It's to be securely deposited and safeguarded more than any other valuable diamond. Because the truths you reap in the Bible is your source of your spiritual life. And it's the sustenance of your sustainment. What you reap from the Bible must not be forgotten, forsaken, and listen. It cannot be relegated to a five-minute devotional or a notebook. Because if we forget, if we forsake it, if we make little room for the Word of God, then guess what? Your heart will be a treasure chest full of something else. So can you say with the psalmist that your mind is a depository for the Word of God? All of it? Not just the easy, sweet stuff, but all of it. Do you fill your mind with the priceless riches of what God has revealed? Or do you fill it more with secular ideas and worldly opinions? Oh boy, more than any probably more than any other time in my life, I have to guard against that. Because I'm fascinated by the political environment going on right now. If I begin to let that fill my heart more than the Scripture, I can become ugly. More ugly than I already am. (laughs) But the same would go for you too, brothers and sisters. The Word of God must fill your heart, not leaving any room for anything else. It's vital to treasure God's Word for a very important reason. And this might be a surprise to some of us. Look at the second line of verse 11. That that I may not sin against you. Notice the psalmist says you, referring to God. The psalmist is chiefly concerned with offending God, not man. He's thinking vertically, not horizontally. Man is not his ultimate concern. God is. When we sin, even if we are sinning against someone else, reconciliation with God is of chief importance. Chief importance. Every sin we commit is primarily against God, and therefore, true repentance must involve a humble and contrite heart before God, first and foremost. Whenever I have the opportunity to train my children, 
or have an opportunity to intervene in a childish banter. They don't need to just they don't they don't need to apologize to each other and their teacher first. They need to get right with God first. When Johnny punches Timmy because they got in a fight on the playground over who gets the football, they didn't simply just disobey the teacher. They sinned against God. And we need to teach our children Remind each other, brother, sister, Timmy, Johnny, what you did was very offensive to God. What should you do? They should repent and they should ask God for forgiveness and be reconciled. And then go to their friend and say, Timmy, I'm sorry for what I did. Will you forgive me? You see, first, God has to be reconciled with, and then man. That's the psalmist's emphasis here. If you have stored up God's word in your mind, you'll see this. And you will also understand that the main reason for treasuring the Bible in your heart is so that you may not sin. Now, isn't that revolutionary? Usually we're taught that We study the Bible and we hear sermons so that we can get something out of it. And that's true. But what's more important than that is that you don't sin against God. There's a fourth effect that the Bible has in your life, and it's to keep you from arrogance. The Bible should keep you from being arrogant. Look at verse 12. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord. That is just a passionate expression of worship prompted by an overflow of gratitude towards God for revealing himself. Remember the context, it's God's word. The psalmist is thankful that God has revealed himself to the extent that he has. He glorifies God. But it's in the second line that underscores this fourth effect. He says, teach me. Teach me your statutes. In other words, this psalmist is no critic. He's no stiff-necked know-it-all. He's not a pompous expert in deciphering what's right and wrong for himself. He humbly yearns for God to instruct him. He's teachable. With this prayer, he rightly views himself as one needing to be taught the truth, as do all of us. With this prayer, he demonstrates the desire not to be a spectator, sitting on the sidelines and making passing comments about its value. With this prayer, the psalmist confesses that God's law must be deeply known. so that we may not wander in sin. So let me ask you guys, do you have a desire to learn the deep things of God? Have you ever rolled your eyes or shrugged your shoulders when you have the opportunity to go beyond the elementary things of our faith? 
Are you content with what you already know? Or with what you think you know? How about this one? Do you only want to drink spiritual milk and never consume meat? You will know the answer to that question based on whether or not you have a teachable mind or an arrogant mind with regard to serious, independent Bible study and hearing the word taught and preached by qualified teachers. In other words, the Bible should leave you wanting more to learn it all. Just like we enjoy a good filling meal, that doesn't satisfy us forever, right? In six hours or less, we want more. And if we could, well, maybe speaking for myself, if we could, I would eat filet mignon every day because I love it. I would sell for a salmon every day because we want more of it. It's so good. It's so filling. It's so nutritious. We just want more of it. It's for a believer, the word of God's the same way. It's our soul food. Your soul should proclaim, God, feed me your law. Satisfy me. Teach me. Instruct me. Correct me. There's a fifth effect that the Bible should have on your life. And this one's pretty straightforward. The Bible keeps you from speaking nonsense. As Christians, we know what to say and how to say it. We are called to speak special things, specific things. We are supposed to declare, that's the how we speak, the word. That's the what we speak. Verse 13 says, With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. In this context, told carries the idea of declaring or proclaiming Often the New Testament translates the Greek form as preaching. And there is something, something very special the psalmist is compelled to declare. The law of God. Notice again it says all. All of God's ordinances. That's why we do expository preaching here. We are compelled to teach all of God's ordinances by exposition. We don't, we don't even have the opportunity to just pick and choose what we want because we do it all. We do it all because the psalmist says so. And now the obvious implication is this. As Bible-believing men and women, what should be evident is the habit of speaking God's word to people we come in contact with. The Bible should have that effect on us. If we keep it and internalize it and learn it, then naturally we won't be able to hold it in. I remember after my conversion, ten years ago, not a month went by before I ran up to my preacher and said, when's my turn? When do I get to go up there and do that? And, and you know, he kind of gave me, you know, one of those, most slow down a little bit. And he said, 
I started out teaching Sunday school. I said, okay, where do I go? I, I, I got to teach. I, I got I to gotta share what I've been given. And so he directed me to the children's minister. He said, you know, it just so happens that I have an immediate need in the third grade boys Sunday school classroom. Here's the curriculum. There is your classroom. So he literally threw me in with very little training, all because I was so eager to share God's word. Now, you don't all have to get it out in that venue, but you should be getting it out somewhere. Whether it's your neighbors, your children, your friends, your coworkers, God's people speak God's word. Is that something that you do? Do you speak God's word to God's people? Or are you a secret service Christian? Somebody who doesn't even think about it or is afraid to. Doesn't know what to say. The effect the Bible has on us should make us want to speak it and share it. The sixth effect that the Bible should have on your life is this. It keeps you from depression. The Bible should keep you from being depressed. To be spared from depression, which is really, truthfully, a matter of the soul, we need not look anywhere else for remedy other than God's prescription for medicine. God's word is sufficient. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Rejoice. Rejoice means to have a feeling or attitude of fondness and enjoyment. So this is the opposite of being sad or depressed. Since we have the complete, sure testimonies of God, hear this. We have no reason to be down. Now, we all get discouraged sometimes. I know I do. It's part of our fallen nature to get down once in a while. But if we stay in the Word like the psalmist, it should make us glad, not sad. John Calvin said this, As wealth attracts itself to the hearts of mankind, so I have taken more exquisite delight in the progress which I make in the doctrine of godliness. Now that was written by a man who was experiencing harsh living. Harsh living. 16th century Switzerland was a hard place to live. It was full of persecution and sickness, poverty. And yet, he delighted in his spiritual growth. We can do that too. We can rejoice and be glad and be fond of the scripture and kill our depression. Specifically, how about a few reasons? 
why you don't have to be sad. This book tells you where you're from, how you were made, why you were made. This book tells you where you are and where you're going. This book tells you who you are and who you belong to. This book tells you with certainty that there is life on the other side and what that life will be like. This book tells you who was ruling in heaven and who is orchestrating the affairs of your life. This book enables you to live a supernatural life in the power of the Spirit. This book is full, chock full, of universal timeless truths, too many to list. And most of all, it reveals a man who willingly suffered and subjected himself to unjust, merciless execution so that you can be forgiven. These things should cause us to rejoice every day. If they don't cause you to rejoice, my friend, then you might not understand the Bible. The Bible should constantly cheer us up and to give us reason to rejoice. Hence the necessity to come to church, to fellowship with believers throughout the week, and to dig deep into Scripture. That's another effect it should have on you. Seventh, the seventh effect the Bible should have on your life is it keeps you from wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. In verse 15, he says, I will meditate on your precepts. Now, meditation is not a short, trivial, brief, light, passing thought about spiritual things. The Hebrew word for meditate was used in the ancient world to describe how a cow would chew grass until it became a cud. You guys ever heard of a cud? You guys know what cud is? It's basically just a digested piece of food that's regurgitated from the stomach. And once this food was regurgitated back into the mouth, the animal would just keep chewing on it over and over and over again. You know, like some of those dudes who would chew tobacco, you know? It keeps it in their mouth. I know it's gross, but this, this is a more contemporary illustration. It just sits in their mouth so they can just, just get all the, 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 the juice and the flavor out of it for as long as they can. The cud was kind of like the cow chewing tobacco, okay? And so, the, so by, by regurgitating this food, they would just extract every nutrient that they could. In fact, when I was uh, at the L.A. Zoo a few years ago, I actually saw this happen in the gorilla exhibit. This mommy gorilla had her baby in her, her hand, and she would chew that plant, and she would literally throw it up. She would scoop it back up with her large hand, put it back in her mouth, chew it for a while, and do it all over again. And I, was just, I was just mesmerized by this. It's kind of gross. I got your attention, though, don't I? That is, what, that is how you are to approach the Word of God. You are to keep chewing on it and chewing on it and, and recalling the Scripture to memory thinking long and hard, hard about it, staying on it, 
and considering its true meaning and application. Meditation is a reflective concentration on God's Word and how it's intended to be brought to bear to your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. If we are to keep our way pure, we must meditate throughout the day. The Bible is not a book to be read at our convenience and then stored on a shelf to collect dust. For to be faithful to God, we must meditate. For example, you could read the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 and think long and hard about its meaning. Chew on it. Chew on the impending and imminent revealing of the glorified Lord Jesus who is coming on a white horse to deal out retribution on those who are unbelieving. Revelation 19. It just shocks me. I'm drawn to the shocking parts of Scripture because that's what I chew on. Think deeply about that. Think deeply about the second coming of Christ and how you're saved from it. The spiritual discipline of meditation, it's, it's almost forgotten. We live in an age where we just want to move on to the next thing. There's so much to do. Instant information. Next, we're done. Move on. No. We need to recapture the spiritual discipline of meditation. Second line of verse 15. He says, regard your ways. God's ways, your ways, are simply that which is revealed in his word. And when we regard his ways as a result of meditation, his word then acts like a filter through which we evaluate the world's ways. We do not regard our own ways or another man's ways. We regard his ways. That means that you need to know his ways better than man's ways. You need to be more familiar with the Bible than the culture. Let me repeat something another preacher said that really stabbed me in the heart. Do not be proud of the fact that you know all of the latest award winners at the Academy Awards. Do not be proud of the fact that you can rattle off all of the pop culture icons of the day. You should be far more familiar with the Bible than the culture. I don't know who won all those awards, by the way. It's just an example. We need to be more in tune with God's clear word than our own goals. We need to be more aware of what God thinks rather than what our friends think about what we should do. Case in point, you know, it's it's getting more and more difficult in the mainstream culture to say that marriage is a God-ordained covenantal institution shared between one man and one woman for life. Now we might have to add biological in there, right? The world will tell you that you're a bigot, you're hateful, you're unloving, you're old-fashioned. 
But when put in the position to present a biblical, rational viewpoint, it may come with a cost. In fact, it does. But remember, remember what Psalm 119 verse 15 says, that God's people regard His ways. We do not regard the worldly progressive ways. The Bible will guard you from falling into wrong thinking. Now the last effect that the Bible should have on your life is this. The Bible keeps you from vanity. Vanity. If you do not find joy in the scriptures, you will neglect it because we, we don't give attention to that which we don't enjoy, right? If I didn't enjoy riding a motorcycle, I would sell it. <laughs> or it would be just in storage. And if you neglect it, you'll forget about it. And when you forget about the Word of God, then you will pursue other things. Vain things. Look at verse 16. The psalmist says, I shall delight in your statutes. To delight in something is to have a feeling of pleasure. To take pleasure in something. And isn't it amazing to think that the psalmist actually found pleasure in God's Word? I mean, we don't, t- we don't talk like that, do we? We don't say, man, that Bible study, that sermon gave me pleasure. That was a pleasurable experience. We don't say that. We say, that was a good sermon. We say, oh, that was convicting. We say, that was interesting. I've gotten that response quite a few times. That was informative. Or that was wrong. Or that was hard. That was hard to hear. I've heard that quite a few times, too. How about this one? Well, that wasn't what I was taught. Or that's frightening. Or that's not for me. And on and on and on. We don't respond with, I've gleaned so much pleasure from that Bible study, that reading, or that exposition. Let's stop responding to, to the Bible that way. And let's start finding more pleasure in being shocked by God's Word. If we take pleasure in it, <clears throat> then we will not forget it. the last phrase here in this stanza, meaning that if we take pleasure in it, it will not go in one ear and out the other. It will be retained. It will be etched in our hearts if we take pleasure in it. Things that give us displeasure, we, we throw it away, don't we? Things that give us pleasure, we hang on to. But we quickly forget the basic truths, don't we? We run after the pleasures of this world, which again, like I said in the introduction, is one reason why I brought this message today. We needed to rehash our basic theology of the Bible. 
And Psalm 119 is the place to go to gain and regain a sound theology of God's Word. So in in conclusion, what do you do with the Bible? What do you do with it? And what effect is it having on you? Is it continually keeping you from immorality? Is it keeping you from apostasy? Is it keeping you from sin? Is it keeping you from arrogance? Is it keeping you from speaking nonsense? Is it keeping you from depression? Is it keeping you from wrong thinking? And is it keeping you from vanity? If you don't see these things in your life, then perhaps you need to rekindle your love for the Word. Or perhaps the Spirit is lacking. The Spirit is the one who illuminates the Scripture to your mind. And the only way to possess the Spirit is through faith alone in Christ alone. Trusting in His work. Not our own work. Trusting in His sufficient righteousness imputed to us through faith and not anything we've done. That's the gospel. To deny yourself, to come to the cross and saying, I've sinned against you, O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Forgive me. And at that point, the Bible says we're justified. And at the point of justification, he gives us his spirit. Spirit indwelt person will run to the word of God, and the word of God will have these effects. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us the tools to and the means to seek after you to keep our way pure may we keep the word may those who have grown cold or those whom have grown discouraged may you grant them repentance and may you rekindle their love those who do not know you and for those who may not understand the truth, may you enlighten them and give them eyes to see the purity of the gospel and the truth of the gospel that it's only through faith it's only through faith that we can obtain salvation not from any sacrament, not from any work not from any morality only you can save us We love you in Jesus' name, amen.